Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and today I'm with author, culinary historian, and journalist Veronica Hinke on a joint production of the Food and History Channels of the Network. We're here to discuss Veronica's new book, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking and Dining in Style, which was published earlier this year by Regnery History, and I am delighted that it brings Veronica to the New Books Network. Veronica, welcome. Hello, Jennifer. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Oh, I'm so delighted to be talking with you. You have such a professional life. You are, I mean, it's fascinating. You're an author, you're a journalist, you're a food critic. You write an incredibly well-known annual roundup of the 50 best things you ate this year, which I think is amazing. And you're also something of a mixologist. Is that right? Yes, all of the above, right? (laughs) Tell our listeners how you knitted all these different aspects um, together uh, and then how all of that brought you to write about the Titanic. Well, you know, it's easy, really, when I think about it, to knit something like this book together, as you put it. That's a great expression. And it's easy because over the years, the one thing I've come to learn, any food story at the heart, it's always about the people. And, oh, that's so yeah, true. It's, it is so true. It's, you, you know, you go in, you talk to a chef, you go in for a recipe and you come out with some really neat words of inspiration or a story of where they've helped people or, um, you know, all sorts of different things. And so I wanted to, more than anything else, honor these people who experienced this tragedy and the way that I found to do that, Jennifer, was to look at their stories through the lens of culinary, mostly. You know, we also look at fashion and uh, music and other um, emblems of, of style of the, of the era. But through food, we're able to look at the different people that had associations with food and we, um, we see people in these stories from people who tucked away menus into their jacket pocket before they went, you know, into a lifeboat or. Yeah. Why, why would they do that? Do you think I was, I, I was, that came up because it comes up in your book again and again, is that the menu was tucked into somebody's jacket. Why, why would they do that? Well, you know, this was the dream ship. And so many people knew that at the time. You know, I'm sure that no one knew it would end up having this type of legacy like it still has today. But even during that time, they knew they were on a really special ship. So any kind of souvenir. And also, I think, you know, I've always been a foodie. I still have my Air France menu from 1984 when I went to Paris as a kid. And yeah, and I, I've got it. You know, I tucked it away. I'm probably nobody else on the plane did, or maybe a few people did, but it's probably the only one, you know, still around from that flight from Chicago to Paris years ago. 
And those were the kinds of people that I wanted to really daylight in the book and tell their story because they were obviously passionate about the food that were, was on board. Um, there was even one example of a menu that was so precious to people that um, they signed it. The people that this man was eating with, they, they signed their names on it. As far as I understand that, that's a, that was a, something people did in the Gilded Age. Was they, if there was a special event, they would all sign the menu as a souvenir. Is that right? Uh-huh. Okay. Let's go back um, briefly to your sort of all-consuming passion for the Titanic. When did that start? How did it start? And um, just a little bit about, because this has been a decades-long fascination for you, as far as I understand. When I was a little girl, I heard about a man who was a popcorn vendor in my hometown. And uh, he was on the Titanic. And I grew up in a very small, isolated community at the time. It was isolated. Now it's much more metropolitan. But uh, it was just amazing to me. How did this man get on a ship like the Titanic? What was his story? And so from the age of nine on, I wanted to learn everything I could about this ship. And when I was in seventh grade, I was in the class that you know everyone looked forward to getting into seventh grade in school because our English teacher in seventh grade would read Walter Lord's book to us, which of course is a night to remember. And she would read it page by page and stop and give us her cliff notes and anecdotes. And I, I was hooked. Okay. <laughs> Cause it's, it's a very glamorous story, but it's also of course quite tragic. Um, as a 12 year old, did that not disturb you? Definitely. And I think what's really fascinating about the Titanic is that it does have this glamorous side to the story that can, in many ways, uh, override the, the negative. And I think that's what food stories do so much. You know, that's why I love covering food, one of the many reasons. And so let's get back to the, the food on the Titanic. Um, You've had this passionate interest in in the ship and its and its fate. What led you to the food part of it? Well, I knew in 2011 that within a year we would be celebrating honoring the 100th anniversary of the Titanic. And as a food writer, I thought, what can I do to be involved and to do something to honor the ship in that centennial year? 2012. So I came up with several different angles to look at. Um, I thought of Popcorn Dan, the man from my hometown area. And what I landed on was a story with the Wine Enthusiast magazine about the wines and cocktails that were aboard the ship. And I was able to stitch that story together through the data that I researched um, through the Premier Exhibitions Company, which at that time had all of the rights to the uh, things that were found at the wreck site. And the data was incredible. It was a whole spreadsheet of everything from champagne bottles to Grand Marnier, you know, um, all sorts of different um, things that weren't always that popular 
in later years, creme de mint, for instance, <laughs> used it. We don't see that in so many drinks anymore. Um, but that was a, a more popular ingredient back in those days. So those things that were on the data sheet that I pulled really tell the story of what was, what people were drinking back then. And we looked at places like Delmonico's New York City and Antoine's in New Orleans, places that were there then that are still there. And by looking at those places and what people were eating there then in, in 1912, we could get a pretty good idea of what they probably were eating and drinking aboard the Titanic. So that was another thing that I looked at. And this is where the culinary aspect of your book comes in, because not only is this uh, a wonderful book about maritime history and an iconic disaster, as well as um, sort of a culinary overview, it's also a cookbook. You provide some amazing recipes um, for cocktails and dishes that were served in all the different classes of service. So this has to have been a gargantuan research project. It was pretty phenomenal. It took many years. And I, I love that I was able to include things from all classes. Thank you for mentioning that, Jennifer, because we really wanted to look at the glamour, but also I think the story that needs to be told is about the, the full, you know, all the different classes. and. Um, the, all of the recipes are not necessarily things that were aboard the Titanic, but uh, some of them are a little bit of a stretch, so to speak. There were things that we could maybe think in terms of, um, like for instance, spring peas were ubiquitous aboard the Titanic because it was springtime. Um, right. So lots of spring peas and they weren't as, integrated into recipes like they are these days. So there are a few recipes like the modern day English spring pea soup that Chef Michael Lashowitz contributed. He's from um, the Chicago area. And so that's an example. There, there was pea soup aboard the Titanic, but it wasn't necessarily the exactly the same kind of thing that we have in the book. Um, but then there are some recipes that are awfully close like the apple meringue that I love. And it was, uh, it was contributed by uh, Gail Gant, another Chicago chef. But that's not to say that all the chefs are from Chicago. There were chefs that I met from around the world. I, and I became good friends with them online. Um, one of them is from Johannesburg, South Africa. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is I, like a global project. It, it really was. And uh, New Zealand, I was looking for recipes for tripe. They're not that easy to find. <laughs> that was a third class menu item. And, uh, you know, I found people with legacy recipes, heirloom recipes from their grandparents. And, um, one of those was a recipe from Sonia Geyer in, um, Johannesburg. And we're in contact almost every day now. It, it's just been an amazing collaborative project. Well, and the, because the interest in the Titanic, I think, is universal. It, it's not just an Anglo-American, Anglo-Irish, uh, Irish-American uh, phenomenon. I think everybody finds it fascinating. And part of the reason, of course, is the iconic film, but also um, the return of the glamour of travel um, by, by ocean liner, which is very popular nowadays. 
but times have changed. And maybe you can, for our listeners' benefits, you can tell us about the different class of services that were on the Titanic and what kind of people might have been traveling in each class and why. Sure. Well, you know, the big thing here that I think is one of the reasons Titanic is still so prevalent today and such a beloved topic is because after World War I, we have never since seen the three great class divides, pretty much three great class divides between first, second, and third classes. And nowhere can you see that more obviously than in travel. And we still see it today, even on airplanes with the class divides, but it's nothing now like it was back in the Edwardian era. And it was a very formal division and um, you know, there were no last minute, well, there were some upgrades, but they probably weren't as, um, common as they are now. People One of the have, biggest. People which, didn't have frequent Titanic cards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a platinum <laughs> member. What do you mean? I'm in second class. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there are little ways now that we have to kind of wiggle into different, um, lifestyles and th- those didn't exist back then. You had to either be a millionaire or you were not going to be in first class. Um, and the, one of the biggest things that I noticed in examining these menus, I looked at them a lot, um, was that in third class in steerage, the big meal of the day, the hearty meal, was midday. That's where we saw like on uh, the last day on the Titanic, on the 14th, Sunday the 14th, they had beef and gravy and potatoes. And then they had tea, you know, later in the day, they'd always have a little tea and, um, you know, biscuits and things to go along with it. Um, cold meat, pickles, fresh bread and butter. There was even some stewed figs and rice for tea, for high tea on April 14th in steerage. And then for supper though, there was just a real, um, staple kind of, uh, you know, sustenance really more than anything. It was cabin biscuits, cheese, and are you ready for this gruel? Oh no. That, so that was the last meal in, uh, third class on the Titanic. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. <laughs> and, um, but it's actually still a lovely meal that they had. Uh, compared to other places where they would have been traveling in those days. Okay. Who would have been traveling in steerage? Well, the person that I mentioned earlier, Popcorn Dan, Daniel Coxon, who was an Englishman living in Wisconsin at the time. He had migrated from England many years earlier. He was in his early 50s. And, um, you know, there's a picture of him in the book, a picture that I love of him in a newspaper boy's cap kind of a shabby look. I mean, I don't mean shabby in a bad way, but just like a real run of the mill street jacket. Um, you know, shabby compared to, you know, like what John Jacob Pastor the fourth was wearing, you know, an ascot tie and a, a tuxedo. Um, and most times anyway, at most times anyway. And, um, he would have been, you know, he had a scruffy beard, wasn't perfectly trimmed. Um, so a little bit more casual. Not, not I don't want to say casual. Not as as expensive looking, you know. Well, but he, still he, dressed nice. 
Uh, but he wouldn't have been expected to dress for dinner. Right, right. He wouldn't be expecting to dress for dinner at all. And not like they did in first class. But what about second class? That seems like sort of a, a mushy area. Like I think we understand Im- immigrant people coming um, in steerage and glamorous first class people. But what about second class? What was that like? Second class was much a noticeable um, step up, you know, in, in, in fashion with, um, you know, nothing as daring and show offy as the hobble skirts like you would have seen in first class or the those fabulous clothes like we saw in James Cameron's movie Titanic that Kate Winslet was wearing. Nothing that fantastic, but a little bit more scaled down, but still nice. And I'm sure there were women who had been to Paris recently that got their new spring clothes that they were wearing, but they just weren't from the, the best of the best um, tailors. And, um, you know, the fashions then were um, very different. Skirts went all the way to the ankle. You did not ever see a skirt go above the ankle. Um, and, you know, there were, there were distinctive styles in shoes with a curvy, thick, chunky heel being one of the popular styles of the day. Um, one of the women that I write about in the book is Lucy Jeff Gordon, who was one of the fashion icons of the day. And her fashion lives on in so many ways. And um, I see it every time I watch Downton Abbey. You know, ah. That's really, if you want to describe her fashion, uh, that, that's where you can see it in that show, Downton Abbey. Well, of course, Downton Abbey opens with the sinking of the Titanic, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> because it's the, it's the inciting incident of the whole first series. Yes. Yeah. Um, so were there three different kitchens um, for the three different classes of service, or was it just one big kitchen? There were actually many kitchens. And in first class, there were kitchens that were dedicated with French chefs. And those were for um, the chefs who were hired by the Italian entrepreneur Luigi Gatti. Um, he was hired because French cuisine was just so uh, sought after in those days. Uh, you know, in those days, there weren't the, the great chefs from Great Britain like we know today, um, like many of the ones in my book. Um, you know, there's Emmett McCourt and... Um, so many different uh, fabulous chefs that are in the book from uh, Great Britain. And, and this was long before that time. So they looked to France and Italy for much of their um, culinary inspirations. So they actually hired a concessionaire, Luigi Gatti, to come in and run French uh, restaurants and French kitchens. And they had French staff. For the most part, for, you know, in many cases, I shouldn't say for the most part, but there were many cases of, of actual people from France. Um, and in fact, uh, there was a very alarming headline that I came across in my research, and it said, Titanic cooks drowned like rats. And I thought, what happened here? Well, it turned out that because the concessionaire staff was not part of the Titanic, the White Star Line staff, and they weren't passengers, they were not able to get up to the boat deck to try to get off. So many of them drowned. 
And that all came out. Yeah. And it came out during the British inquiry into the Titanic. Because they would have been down at the bottom. Is that right? right? Yeah. yeah. And one of them, Paul Mogay, who was working with um, uh, one of the French chefs, one of the, uh, you know, people that did not make it off, he survived. Paul Mulgay survived and told the story of what happened. And it was very convincing the way he describes it in the, in the inquiry, which is, it's available, you know, to the public. Anyone can read that. And you must have gone through it very carefully. Yes, I did. I found a lot of really intriguing things in it. For instance, um, you know, the fabulous story of the baker who was English and he was always known in history as the drinker that he had been drinking and everyone always thought it was a bottle of scotch. And what I found out was that he was drinking, but it was his great niece told me that it was actually, according to him, schnapps. And the baker that I'm talking about is Charles Jockin. And Charles Jockin had just had some incredible story. He uh, was raised in England, but as a young boy had to leave school to start working on the sea. And he had worked in many capacities. He was actually trained as a pastry chef. But on the Titanic, he was a baker. And he was in charge of getting the bread onto the lifeboats after the Titanic struck the iceberg. Um, he has a, a really intriguing story to tell or uh, uh, that happened to him about his fate, which he did not let make him a victim on the Thursday before the Titanic struck the iceberg. He noted his life raft assignment, his lifeboat assignment for where he would be expected to go to man a lifeboat if there was an emergency or disaster, which there ended up being. And you know, he was no stranger to the sea, so he had been through similar things like that, and he knew he needed to check that out. Well, on Sunday night, when it came time for him to board that lifeboat, you know, he had been helping get the lifeboats boarded, and when it was time for him to get an assignment to go into a lifeboat, he didn't get assigned, he did not get the orders to board. And that's when he went down back, downstairs back to his quarters and drank, he said that he had a nip told the British in yeah, he had a nip and, you know, who wouldn't at a point like that where you, you've been told you're going to be manning this lifeboat and you don't get the orders to go in. Someone else does. He comes back upstairs and he sees that all the lifeboats are gone at this point. And he thinks, look at these chairs, the deck chairs, big, heavy wooden chairs. He thought, if I can throw these all into the water, Maybe there will be one that I can hold on to when I'm in that water. And I was just so inspired by the people who thought like that. Like, don't react, act. You know, it always, yeah, inspires me to remember that. Like, don't react, act. What are you going to do about your situation? And that gives a new understanding to the expression to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, doesn't it? It sure does. Yes. I love that, Jennifer. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. That's really You you can have that one for free. (laughs) No, but it's true because I just uh, recently somebody was using that expression and I said, oh, I'm reading this fantastic book about the last night on the Titanic and the food. And um, we, but that's pretty mainstream. 
expression, I think. Um, but now we know that they turned out to be super useful, right? Yeah, in this case, they sure did. And then they sure did. His story gets even better. He just continues to to press on, and he holds on. To so he makes him. it. He makes it. He makes it. Yes. Yeah. How many of the crew did make it? Um, as far as numbers, and to give a specific number, it's hard to tell because you know some of the bodies were never recovered. Um, some of the people perished later on because even the ones that made it into the water, um, you know, to fight for their lives and try to get into a lifeboat, many of them died of hypothermia later. But not not this guy because he had the schnapps. Well, and I don't know if I think that that is why. I, I mean, oh, well, I, I think I, definitely, yeah. Well, maybe it did help. Yeah, I think there is yeah, I think so. a theory out there that it definitely might have helped. Could have kept things sort of warm enough to, to go. Um, when you were doing your research, did you, I mean, did you have to go far and wide? Did you go to Ireland? Did you go to England? Where Where does someone go to you know, research the Titanic? Well, I would have gone to London, Ireland, if I had been able to. Halfway through of the project, I was, I got a call one day. And, and so the reason I'm telling you this is so you know how inspiring this was for me to do this research at this point in my life. I got a call one day that my mother had died suddenly. And it was just out of the blue. She had been in perfect health. And then six months later, I found out I had triple negative breast cancer. So I literally did this book while I was going through surgeries, treatments, not so much the treatments because I had already turned the book in in February. The treatments were more in March and April. But the reason I'm telling you this is because I had to do as much as I could from, I was in Washington, D.C. part of the time, um, Chicago, New York. And I did a lot of my research through old newspapers. I loved researching old headlines like the one I mentioned earlier. Um, thank goodness a lot of this information is online. And then my favorite way was, as I mentioned earlier, meeting people through Facebook, um, you know, finding them through the internet and talking to survivor uh, relatives who heard their stories. That was one really goal of my big goal of mine. And I found some of those folks kind of through the grapevine. You know, I would talk to one and they would say, well, you should talk to so-and-so. And um, it wasn't easy. It was not easy so to you locate them, but I did. Built a whole, whole new community for yourself. For me, yeah, I really did. Yeah. And um, it, it, I can't tell you the joy that we've all felt getting to know each other. I found, I, I really got and had a really neat treat. Um, one of the ladies that I met through the internet Astra Burka was able to come to my book party at Delmonico's in New York in April, on April 15th. Uh, oh, the, wow. Yeah, the 107th anniversary. <laughs> the actual day. Yeah. And she well, was, I'm glad you're, how is your health now? Are you, are you in good shape? I am in good shape. I'm oh, that's good to know. in the clear, very blessed. And I have to tell you, the one of the reasons I share that story is because you know, can you imagine going to work, dealing with all that, and then coming home and writing stories about this topic? And a friend of mine reminded me, she said, these people are the wind beneath your wings, keeping you up. Yeah. This. 
the inspiration, in other words. Which which leads us, I think, very, very elegantly to um, Margaret Brown or the unsinkable Molly Brown, who you go into in some detail. Um, she was on the ship. She helped a lot of the women in her lifeboat sort of keep their spirits up. Can you can you tell me a little bit about her? I'm so glad you asked. You know, Scott Rank, the host of History Unplugged, we produced a podcast, a whole episode um, trilogy or uh, several, more than a trilogy, but several different um, episodes of the Titanic series. And, you know, we actually had one episode dedicated just to Molly Brown. Oh, wow. And that is because she is so amazing. That woman is incredible. Um, can you, for our listeners, can you, I mean, because I think people know that she was on the Titanic, but they don't know maybe her backstory. Um, and I think it's really a fascinating one. It's sure And you is. do it so well in the book. Well, thank you. She was a rags to riches story. And through the, all of the media that I've seen throughout the years, the depiction of Molly Brown aligned more with the quote that I thought she said um, about not wanting to marry a poor man. And her great granddaughter clarified for me that the quote that Molly actually said was, I would rather marry a poor man that I love than a rich man that I didn't. And I don't think that. And she did. Uh, and she, right? and she did. She married. A, she exactly. Did. She married a very poor man who was on the verge of becoming incredibly wealthy. Um, he made it big in the mining industry and, um, they came into fabulous wealth and she traveled all over the world. And you know, she came from a little mining town in Colorado and here she, um, you know, is traveling around the world with John Jacob Astor the fourth and his, 19-year-old new bride and, um, you know, the uh, Guggenheims and, you know, the Vanderbilts. She was right there with all of them. And um, many people would have maybe kicked back at that point in their lives. Molly did nothing but that. She, you know, she was a, a force. She was always thinking about other people, very philanthropic, doing things for the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, bringing gifts for the staff, um, putting trees in the lobby, bringing things for the children that were needy in Denver at the time. She lived in Denver. Um, she was also very well known for uh, organizing a group of men, mostly men, um, uh, aboard the Carpathia. And she got something going that first morning in the wee hours of the 15th was when uh, the passengers who survived were picked up by the Carpathia, and she organized these men to honor Captain Rostron of the Carpathia and his crew because they braved through iceberg-infested waters to get right. to those people to bring them aboard, and they didn't have to do that. But they did, yeah, and they saved them, yeah, and then they, because they certainly would have died without the Carpathia, isn't that right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Many ships were afraid to go in to get them because they might hit an iceberg too. Um, right. And then what really amazed me was to, to hear the story of how Molly encouraged the women in her lifeboat to stay warm by rowing. And she organized, you know, shifts for them to row through the night. And I just, I know that we all would love to think that we would behave that way. 
in a situation like Molly was in. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we would all, all hope that way. Um, and she's in the film of Titanic. I think Kathy Bates plays her. Is that right? Yes. And um, yeah. she does a great job portraying yeah, Molly she Brown. Does. And I just, I personally would like to see that heartfelt side to her shown more. And mm-hmm. I think that I did a, a good job of that in this book. And I'm so grateful to her great granddaughter for enlightening me to the real Molly Brown. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the more intriguing for me recipes in the book is her artichoke souffle. I'm definitely going to try that in the very near future. Um, but let's talk about a few of the other recipes and more about the food a little bit. One thing that really blew me away was the amount of food provisioned for the ship. You talk about 4,000 oysters being brought on in Ireland. I mean, they and they had state-of-the-art kitchens and they must have had very sophisticated refrigeration because they would have been provisioning for, what's a seven-day voyage? Yes. Yes. So... I mean, talk a little bit about the the machinery down in the kitchens and the um, what produced the sorbets and the um, all of these amazing uh, confectionaries, the the chocolate eclairs and the all these amazing desserts baked Alaska. Well, it was definitely state of the art. I mean, it was top of the line, the best of the best of the best. And as you mentioned sorbet there was an electric sorbet maker on board can you believe that which has to have just seemed fantastic i mean yeah i mean must have seemed like a an instapot today exactly it would be like today's (laughs) instapot and there was an ice cream maker on board and um that's that was his job he was the ice cream maker and they called him the ice man so i started trying to find out more about what he did did he you know manage the ice for the ice boxes but there was electricity. So so they made the ice. Yeah, they made yeah. ice yeah. cream. And um, this man's story, this young man's story, he was 19 years old. He was from Inwil, Switzerland. And he was on his crossing to across the, the uh, Atlantic on the Titanic. He had told his parents, if I make this crossing, I'll be able to get any job in culinary in any of the best hotels in London. Hmm. That's how important the Titanic was. That's why it's still important today. And um, and he did not make it out. He he did not survive. And I yeah I mean, I love the story of him because yeah um, he this young man making a go of it and he was born in a wine shop. Adolf Matman was his name from Inwil, Switzerland. And I I was able to get in touch with someone who um, was is very close to his relatives and he was able to share a lot with me and um yeah so that was his job making the ice cream they had amazing state-of-the-art capabilities that i think most people that i talk with about this jennifer they're just shocked to think of the electricity and all the different things i'm shocked to think of it and and i you know i spend a lot of time in that period um in research and it it blows and i think anytime we think about taking machinery like that and putting it on a ship, it becomes even more fantastical. And one detail that you bring up in the book that I just sort of thought, whoa, was that they had a completely kosher kitchen as well. Yes. And wow. little, little known that it's kind of tucked away in the history books, but there are books about it, about the Titanic 
and the kosher meals. Um, you know, I read somewhere at some point that there were even cases many, many years ago where people didn't make the crossing because they were that adherent to kosher food and kosher rules. And, um, you know, if there wasn't kosher food on board, they just wouldn't eat it. Now, I don't. One aspect of the book, and it, again, is such a beautiful book. It almost reminds me of a vintage scrapbook. It's got um, pictures and lots of Art Nouveau embellishments. Was that part of the design idea? How much of the design were you involved in? Well, it was really nice of the publisher to keep me in the loop. And everything I saw, I just said, oh, I love it. I love it. I just, you know, never had a problem with anything they were doing. It was fantastic. And at first I saw the ink blue and I thought, what is this? But it turned out to be a really great technique for getting the photos included. And to me, the photos are really uh -huh. important. So I was glad that they did that. The photos really make it. Yeah. Um, and where do those all come from? The photos? From? A variety yeah. of places. Some of them were uh, given to me by survivor family members. And many of them were things that I found in newspapers. Um, just different I, I give a lot of credit to uh, the Molly House Molly Brown House Museum in Denver and where is that, in Denver. that in yeah Denver. they provided several of those photos and um, several of them were from the Library of Congress um, you know a whole variety of places and can I ask you about uh, again putting the book together you had this passion for the Titanic um, you had your interest in food. Did it begin with the idea of food as the fulcrum and then sort of these offshoots? Or did you imagine a different kind of book? Or how did you arrive at the the very interesting way you've organized the facts? Because we get in each chapter, we get so so much detail, but but vignettes and portraits of the people who were on board and the recipes and the um, the food and the drink. It's just it's very unique way of presenting. Uh, material like this. And I think it's, it's, it makes it really, really readable. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. I started to think at first, how do we extrapolate to turn what was a 350 word magazine article about the food and drinks into um, a 300 and some page book? How do you do that? And I thought, well, you know, by looking at people like the popcorn vendor, he fits because it's food related. Um, there were people that wrote letters home to their family members about what they ate that first day they were aboard the ship. So we were able to, you know, not only learn about the food, but about the people. And one of those men was um, an amazing man, Adolfo Salfeld, who had, he had been carrying perfume samples with him. And so I was able to tell the story about how they found the perfume samples at the wreck site. Um, because he wrote a letter home to his wife telling in great detail about the first fabulous lunch that he had on April 10th when he, after he left Southampton. And so he sort of, you know, made it into the book that way. And I loved that he did because he had such an amazing story. He survived the Titanic, but only to be met with all the scorn of the people that were judging him for having boarded a lifeboat even though it was women and children first and many of them did not survive so he would spend hours all night going through the streets of london unable to sleep his chauffeur patch would drive him around 
helping him get to sleep. And um, I was able to meet his great niece, actually a great granddaughter, because he had adopted her, um, her mother or his. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It was his great niece. I was thinking about something else there. Um, it's a little complicated because her great grandfather, her, her grandfather, was actually one of the men that wrote the first letter from the Titanic, Paul Danby. And that's why I got confused because he was seeing off her uncle at Southampton. And before he did, he took some of the Titanic stationery that was in the room in the, in his, um, his, uh, uncle's cabin and wrote a note to his wife. So I digress there, but I wanted to share how, you know, that interesting connection. And anyway, so we looked at people like that and fit them into this tidy composition of all about food and style. We looked at the chefs, mm-hmm. the cooks, the ice cream maker, anyone who had not, not every one of them, but the people that had, you know, stories that interest me. I thought that that would interest other people as well. Well, I think you've picked up on that successful upstairs, downstairs, uh, another thing that has the Titanic in it, come to think of it, um, that, that sort of you present everything from John Jacob Astor the fourth down to the popcorn man. And it's, it's just such an exciting read. Um, and, and you really feel like you are on board. Um, you're the, that, you know, you're, you're setting sail from Southampton. Have you ever been on a transatlantic cruise? No, I haven't. Well, that, well, I think you, you must now, or or would you be nervous about it? No, I wouldn't be. I, I had been invited to go on the cruise that they had on the centennial, the crossing that they did, and I had to work. <laughs> no, I wish I would have said, <laughs> I'm going on vacation, but it was a bad time to take a vacation, but I regret it so much. I wish I could have gone on that cruise. Well, I hope a cruise. I hope a cruise is in your future because you you write it, you bring it to life so well in this book. I think it would be fun um, to do the actual journey. Um, I know that there are tons of people who do Titanic dinner parties. Am I right about oh, that? Oh yes, that, that's right that's a that. thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that for them, your book is going to be such a treasure trove of um, actual recipes and ideas and inspiration for. Titanic themed dinners. Yeah. So several years ago, Rick Archbold and Dana McCauley came out with this fabulous book called The Last Dinner on the Titanic, very close to the title that uh, my book has, only a little one word off, The Last Dinner. And it was a real microscopic look at that last meal. And ever since that book came out with, again, with inspired recipes and recipes that are very close to what actually would have been on board that night. Uh, everyone around the world, Jennifer, started having their own dinner parties. And that's when that really became popular. And, and what we were hoping to do with this book is even inspire, you know, cocktail parties, cheese, other things, rather than that last full um, dinner, which can be very complicated and very laborious. But what this um, book does is hopefully inspires people to think about you know, like one of the things I did for my party was I had um, different cheeses that were cost conscious that resembled the first class cheeses that were sky high prices. Mm-hmm. Um, like instead of Edom cheese, we had Mimolette. 
which is oh, right. okay. a, a very um, budget-friendly cheese. And we look at oyster safety, like how to shuck an oyster safely so that you can actually feel comfortable entertaining at home with oysters. I think for many people, that's a, a daunting task. It's, it's not for us. I have a husband who's a whiz at opening oysters, so I'm very lucky. Um, yeah, because I think there's nothing better. And oysters are just everywhere on the Titanic, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you have that wonderful oysters a la russe um, recipe, which I, definitely is another one to try. Do you have a favorite recipe from the, from the book, Veronica? I have so many, and I love the chocolate eclairs. <laughs> it's so hard to pick. I can't pick one, but there are some that I just absolutely love. And I, I really love them all because of the story behind each one. The chocolate eclairs to me is really special because Gail Gand uh, provided that recipe and truly it's an honor to Charles Jockin, who was a French pastry chef and working as a baker on this crossing though. Um, I love the spring pea souffle that Michael Lashowitz provided. Uh, it's just a bright, vibrant color and lovely and flavorful. Uh, you know, I, I can't even begin to pick one. And how about a favorite cocktail? Because oh, you have I, so many wonderful cocktails. Yes, um, and, and you I write can, about them so well. Oh, thank you. The, uh, there are a couple that I have to... Can I name like two or three? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Please do. I yeah. love the Clover Club. Uh, it was invented in Philadelphia, and I used to live there. And um, it actually, ironically, it became popular in New York, actually, though. And it was in John Jacob Astor IV's hotel that it became popular. It was invented in Philadelphia at what is now the Bellevue Hotel. But later on is when it became popular in New York, um, in John Jacob Astor IV's hotel. So, so many amazing Titanic ties to history. And then I love it because it's made with egg whites and a little bit of lemon and some raspberry simple syrup. So it's great for Valentine's Day. I made one for, you know, around Easter time. It's just a really pretty drink. So that's why I love that one because it's very iconic of the Edwardian drinks. And I absolutely love the Robert Burns. I love it, the flavor. And I love that drink because that drink is what I had when I went to the Waldorf Astoria, the hotel that Jen Jacobastor IV owned many years ago. And it was in Peacock Alley, which at that time was managed by um, Frank Kaiafa, who has contributed many recipes to the book. And he redid the Waldorf Astoria Bar book many years ago, um, about three years ago, I think it is now. And Frank's just been such an amazing source of information and a terrific support to me with this whole book project. Um, that is where I learned that the Robert Burns comes with a very special garnish, ah. a shortbread cookie. Oh. It has a cookie for it. You don't serve it without the cookie. And why so, the cookie? Why the cookie? Uh, well, because the whole tie into Scotland. Okay. And somewhere someone thought this would be neat, and I'm so glad they did. And um, interestingly enough, Robert Burns was from Dumfries, Scotland. And there was someone else aboard who was aboard the Titanic. The first violinist was from Dumfries, Scotland. And he has a, a book dedicated, several books dedicated 
just to him. His name was John Jock Hume. And um, he, he has a, an amazing story. So, And he's um, part of the band that played on, playing Abide yes. by Me. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how you keep all these things in your head. Um, <laughs> to be honest, it's an astonishing piece of work. And it's just um, a marvelous resource for anyone who wants to more, know more about the Gilded Age and the Titanic and f- the food of the Edwardian era. I, ju- I just think it's a, it's a marvelous accomplishment and I loved reading it and I'm looking forward to cooking from it. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. I hope that others can feel like that as well so that they can be inspired by the stories of these amazing people. Well, it's, it, it is an astonishing piece of work. Tell me, Veronica, what, what are you working on now? Well, right now I have been really working hard on the podcast series. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And getting the, telling the story through the internet. And can you tell listeners where they might find that? Or is right, it not yet published? It, no, it is. It's out online okay. and it's uh, History on the Net, History uh-huh. Unplugged. And right now we are, my co-host Scott Rank um, had this great idea to have a sweepstakes where you can win a free book. Oh, wow. So, okay. um, yeah, so kind of fun and uh, really neat. Who wouldn't love to win something over a, a podcast, right? So uh, exactly. I was excited to hear about that. That sounds great. And another book, hopefully, because um, it would be a shame if there wasn't one, but perhaps oh, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope so. Uh, the, and, food of the, the food of the Concord, maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I mean, these people in the story, the book that I wrote here, I, these stories are just so fabulous. I can't imagine what would parallel that. I, it's just, I'm still blown away. Well, I'm sure when you find it, Veronica, it's going to be um, a great success. Tell listeners where they can find out more about you. Um, do you. Do you have a website? Well, or are I'm you on, on social media? Facebook? Okay. Instagram. I'm Food Stringer on Instagram and Twitter. Food okay, stringer. We'll put and, that in the show notes. Okay. And uh, you can buy the book online at Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and Amazon. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thank you, Veronica. We've been talking to Veronica Hinky about her marvelous new book, The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable Drinking and Dining and Style. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremieva for the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.